This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Memorial Day is this weekend. And as you know, it's not just a time for vacation, but a time to reflect on and honor the brave men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice while serving this great country of ours. Heroes who risked everything to protect our freedom. And our guest today is a man who did exactly that. Dakota Meyer is a U.S. Marine who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2009, during the Battle of Ganjigal, Dakota defied orders to storm into an ambush of our guys in an effort to save his friends. He repeatedly entered a valley with more than 50 Taliban fighters shooting at him from three different sides to bring both American and Afghan soldiers to safety. He is credited with saving 36 lives that day in acts of bravery so incomprehensible in their scope that 60 Minutes later reported on them as follows. I have never seen the like. That's what a helicopter pilot who had watched a 21-year-old Marine stave off a Taliban ambush that threatened to overrun his unit told us. We interviewed uh, a number of pilots who were there that day. Uh, and several of them stopped in mid-sentence, unable to, unable to finish their description of, uh, of Meyer's actions that day. Was, uh, they just didn't have the words to describe it. Dakota was awarded the Medal of Honor, the highest honor in the military by President Obama for his bravery. But the road forward for Dakota has not been without its challenges. He is an example of what it means to sacrifice in the name of country, to pick oneself up no matter how hard one falls. An example of what it means to be a man and a Marine. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. 
Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to the show, Dakota. Thank you so much. I have been looking forward to this since the last time. Me too. Me too. I actually lived in fear to see the email come in like, Dakota wound up being busy. Dakota can't do it. I'm so happy that it actually is happening. Yeah, no, it's awesome. How are you? Uh, I'm great. I'm so great. And just more enamored with you and your your character than ever. You know, one of the privileges of interviewing a guy like you is I get to spend tons of time immersed in your story, you know, reading your books and just boning up on the the details. And it's just breathtaking. I know it's not always easy to go through, especially the details of a story like yours. So I'm I'm honored that you've agreed to do it with me yeah. and my audience, uh, especially on a day like this. So thanks yeah. again. Um, OK, let's start back with little Dakota Meyer. Little baby Dakota Meyer was born to a teenage mama who didn't know all that much about how to mother a young baby. Um, and while your dad was never really part of the picture at all, there was a man who would become critical to your life, your character development and who you would become. And tell us about how your mom got connected with him and who he was. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't really know how, I mean, I know it sounds weird. I, I don't really know the story of how they got divorced, when they got divorced or anything like that. I, I just know that, um, you know, the, the man that I call my, my dad today, uh, he, he, I guess he adopted me at some point before they had gotten divorced. And, uh, he was married to my mother. And then, uh, after they, you know, they, they split up or, or whatever happened, then I, you know, I still stayed living with my mom, but I was with my, my dad, you know, like the, I guess they call it expanded standard custody. Now, like I would see him every other Wednesday and, and, uh, on the weekends and, you know, life with my mom was chaotic growing up. Uh, I, I don't, I don't blame my mom for anything. Uh, my mom, I'll say this, my mom did the best that she could with me. I, I, I could not imagine having a child when I was 17. And, and you know, I honestly, I, I carry a lot of guilt. Or I, I, I feel bad that, that, you know, I, I probably changed the trajectory of her life. Right. And, um, but I was just so fortunate to have this man, you know, uh, in, in the books, we call him Big Mike. But, you know, to me, he's dad and, and just a man who, you know, it's hard enough to raise your own kids. Right. It's hard enough to. To, to, to show up and, and, and do and, and be the, the man that, that, that they need and, and, and to, to, to be that and, and just to, to choose somebody else's responsibility is just it's such a testament to the man that, and the character that he is. Yeah, really, it is. Big Mike is, he's quite a guy, um, adopted you and raised you as his own. And when she got to the point of saying, you know what, I think it's better if you just take him, he said, welcome home and, and take you, he did. Now, this is all down in, I know you're born in Columbia, Kentucky. Is that where you were living for your upbringing? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up on a farm. Uh, it's kind of in the middle between uh, there's Columbia, Kentucky and Greensburg, Kentucky. And we, we literally live on the line of that. And uh, I grew up on a farm uh, with, like I said, my, my dad and my grandparents. And uh, yeah, I mean, when, when my mom finally just said, hey, you know, you, you, you can take him. It was over uh, the summer of, uh, I think I started the fifth grade uh I started the fifth grade living with my dad and, you know, my, my mom called I'll never forget that phone call. And it was just such a relief to be able to stay with my dad and, and, and be over there and, and uh, yeah, just stay with him from that point on. Then did you have an ongoing relationship with your mom after that? You know, 
you know, I think she, she kind of like disappeared for a little bit and then she, she'd dodge back into life and, you know, I'd see her, she lived up in Louisville. And so it was obviously a long drive. And then I would, um, I mean, I'd go see her whenever there was time or she had time. So I mean, I'd see her, you know, uh, on the weekends sometimes, but, but it, you know, she, after, after I moved out from being with her, um, I mean, as far as like, I, I never really seen her. It was never really like a, a mother son relationship from that point on. And so you're, you become a good old Kentucky farm boy and big Mike is tough in a, in a loving way. But I mean, I think he's sort of the guy who made a man out of you before you got to the Marines. And I love the stories about, you know, how he instilled that in you just sort of tough love but definitely both both pieces of that were present you know he was tough but he was loving so uh, we talked about this a little bit the last time about tinkerbell but what when you look back on sort of the lessons that he that he taught you and sort of the character development that he did of you what jumps out uh you, you know my my dad is um i think the best way to put it and i know this is used a lot uh loosely but my dad is unapologetic unapologetically him right uh, and there's something to be said about that. My, my dad, you know, you know, criticize how he lives his life. You critique that you critique how he, how he handles himself or, or whatever presents himself or how he delivers things. But, um, my dad lives life on his own terms. And, um, you know, my dad, I know one thing that he instilled in me growing up was, you know, we're not going to try to keep up with the fads or the, you know, in, in school and especially in a small town, you know, there's a lot of clicks. And, you know, you're, there's a lot of social statuses or, or, you know, your last name or, you know, what, what you wear, or, you know, all that. I mean, it's especially growing up is, is, is as a factor of where you stand in, in the social, social status. And my dad didn't care. Uh, my dad cared about you doing the right thing. And, and, you know, the, 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 the thing that I, I really just, I'm, I'm more and more aware of every single day is uh, the, the honor that they had with our name, right? Like, you know, when we die, it doesn't matter what you have and it doesn't matter what you, you know, what, how much money you made and, and none of that stuff matters. But the, the last thing that people remember is, is your, is, is your last name. It's on your tombstone. And, um, and keeping that clean and keeping that honorable is something that, you know, my dad's always done. Uh, my dad's always, he was all about being fair. He was all about doing what you say you're going to do. He was all about, you know, accountability. I mean, these are all, these are all factors that, that my dad instilled in me. And, 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 you know, it wasn't something that he, you know, he, he, he taught just by pointing it at you. It was something my dad taught you by the way he lived his life and the way that my grandfather lived his life and my grandmother lived her life. And these were all things that, that were very important. And these were these were non-negotiables. These were these were principles that were instilled instilled in our family uh, that were that were not th these were non you know, th there, there was no give on those. Mm -hmm. So what were you like as a boy? Were you were you a little rascal or were you how were you? You know, I, I, I was, I was, I was a handful, right? I, I'll say this. I, I was never putting handcuffs. Um, <laughs> okay. So Check. I had that going for me. Uh, you know, but I, I think I was your typical high school student, right? I mean, I, I played, I played sports. I was, um, you know, I was, I was always out getting into stuff. I, uh, definitely tried to, to toe the line. Um, you know, if you look, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much, too much space. Right. So, I mean, I was always into something. I was always into pushing the limits on everything that I could. Uh, but, but I think that that's, you know, the, the, again, back to, to my dad's 
to my dad's raising, um, you know, I, I, he let me, he let me figure life out on my own, right? As long as I wasn't going to hurt somebody else and I wasn't putting myself in danger, you know, like kind of figure it out. You know, my dad, you know, he was a, he was a single dad raising me, which just is a whole other factor. Right. And, uh, and, and imagine doing that, imagine doing that when you didn't have this technology of cell phones of, of locations. And I, you know, I mean, I just, we had none of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, just going out and riding four wheelers, living on a farm, you know, running tractors, uh, cutting hay, like, you know, doing all these things. Uh, and, but, but doing it, you know, figuring life out on my own a little bit, having my left and right lateral limits of, of, you know, to be able to get through these challenges and to be able to face these obstacles and have to think on my own and not have someone over my shoulder protecting me every single, you know, every inch of the way. And, and that's, yeah, I mean, so I was, I, I was always into something, always like. It, but that's always. amazing. I mean, we just we just interviewed Jonathan Haidt on the program. Height, it's spelled Haidt, but it's pronounced Haidt. Um, and he's, you know, he wrote the coddling of the American mind, and he he was talking about how we have to stop with the helicopter parenting. We have to start raising independent thinkers and kids who understand the value in taking risks, and just know in their hearts that they can do something new because they've done it time and time again without a parent leaning over their shoulder watching them. You know, we're not doing that anymore. And Big Mike did not need that lesson in parenting. He was living it. Yeah. I mean, and I, I just don't think, I don't think that my dad could have done it. Right. I mean, I don't like, he, he didn't have the capabilities to do it. My dad worked, you know, 60 hours a week at his, at his, at his full-time job. And then he came home and he worked another 40 to 60 on the farm. And it, you know, my dad, that's what he did. I mean, that, that was a way of life. And, um, you know, so there was no time to, you know, it was a team effort around the house, right? Like you had to pull your weight because there was so many things that needed to get done. And, and that was just kind of how we, we lived. And, and, you know, so with that comes responsibility and, and it comes growing up. And, and I, I'm thankful that my dad lived like that way. I'm thankful that my dad, you know, that my dad instilled those values in me because that's, that's, that's the difference between me and the generation that had someone helicopter piloting or, you know, helicopter parenting over them um, is it, it taught me these, these critical skills to be able to think past what someone tells me to do or, or to just, you know, follow, follow the leader. It, but it's also, you're not just different from the generation that followed you. You're just different from everyone because the, you know, the vast majority of people, even a lot of Marines would not have done exactly what you did and have taken so many risks repeatedly at, at you know, that endangered your life. Uh, I mean, no disparagement to the Marines whatsoever. I'm just saying like, there's a reason you were only, I think what the second person to receive the second Marine to receive the medal of honor since 1974. I mean, it's not that extraordinary acts of bravery hadn't preceded you. It's just that yours were really extraordinary. And so part of what's interesting to me is like, how does one raid, raise a Dakota Meyer? How does one build a Dakota Meyer? Like what happened in your childhood? Was it, you know, I mean, we could get totally psychological. Was it your feeling of abandonment by your biological dad or your mom? Or like, was there some benefit to being sort of shuffled around under her wing when she was going sort of from place to place? Like, was it all Big Mike? Was it life on the farm? Like, do you have any insight into what made you the way you are? Well, I think, you know, I think one aspect of it is, is, uh, is I, I don't know, like, you know, obviously, obviously, you know, my, 
you know, my dad, you know, my dad kept me safe, right? Like I, by no means that was I ever in any harm, but I, I never had anybody take up for me. So I, I had to figure it out on my own, right? I mean, I can remember these two guys in, uh, in elementary school that just tortured me. Like, I mean, I, I mean, literally growing up, um, you know, especially in middle school, I mean, I, I thought Goodwill was a brand, right? I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I used I mean, literally, I, I grew up in a trailer park, right? Um, and, and I, you know, so, I mean, that, that's a kids, kids like that get made fun of and, you know, you, you got a choice to make and, and it just, you know, you know, that pain of, of, of not understanding why someone is making fun of you, especially at that age, right. Uh, of why someone is, is looking down on you or why someone is, is making you feel this way. And then, and then I think that what happens is, is, you know, I, I go to my dad's and, and, I, and I watch my dad stand up for what's right. My dad, like there was, my dad was always about standing up for what's right, right? Like you don't compromise on right. There, there is a right and there is a wrong with everything. You don't compromise right for wrong at any, at any stance. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the cost is. And, you know, my grandfather was a Marine and, and that man was, you know, he, he was about uh, accountability. And I just think that like, I think you add all those aspects up. And then growing up on a farm, and the, the whole thing about having a farm is, is these living creatures come before you, you know, like, mm. I, I mean, we, we had cattle, we had, you know, we had all these responsibilities and, you know, all that came first. It didn't matter whether it was raining. It didn't matter whether it was comfortable. It didn't matter whether it was early. It didn't matter whether it was Christmas. It didn't matter whether it was your birthday. They all still needed taken care of. And so I think you, you put all these, these factors together about, you know, putting others before you, even though it's animals. I mean, animals matter. I mean, animals, you know, they're, they're, whether on a farm, it's, it's, it's your livelihood sometimes. Right. Um, and they rely on you and, and, and just growing up in these environments. And, and I think that, you know, you turn that into, you know, not wanting other people to hurt. Right. Like I can't stand when someone else hurts. Like I can't stand when they get picked on. I can't stand, you know, I, I hate, I hate bullies. I hate when the, and I don't know if you call it the weaker person, right? I hate, I hate the weaker person, but when the, the, when, when, when the less fortunate or whatever it is, person gets picked on for no reason, uh, that I don't like that. And I, I feel like I was fortunate enough to have a, a big mic in my life that, that taught me how to stand up and that demanded that I would stand up for, for not only myself, but, but for, you know, for what was right. And I think that, you know, all that combined together is just something that I can empathize with people who are hurting. And I want to help people who are hurt, who, who, mm. who are hurting, not hurt anymore. So you're independent. You um, learn to take risks and deal with the consequences. You hate bullies and you were taught to do the right thing, no matter the consequences. And so we're seeing it. We're kind of seeing it come together, even if I'm sure you were not seeing the man being built while it's being built, right? You're just a kid. You're a kid in Kentucky and you're sort of doing what's expected of you. And then the next thing you know, there's a guy, I think, at your high school behind yeah. a little recruiting table telling you, you cannot do it. You cannot become a Marine. You don't, you don't, you don't have it. <laughs> yeah, he that? told me, he said, uh, you know, I mean, I didn't even really know what the Marine Corps was. My grandfather was in the Korean War. And um, I mean, I never heard him talk about it. I mean, I... I knew I'd like seen, 
which I know now is an NCO sword. I mean, I'd seen that. I'd seen, you know, a little, gl- you know, glimpses here and there, like a picture of, of a plane. And I, I never knew what it meant, right? Um, I didn't even know what the Marine Corps was. And uh, I was walking through my lunchroom one day. Um, yeah, I walked through the lunchroom one day. And I don't know what it was. It just, you know, I thought I was going to go to college. I mean, that's what everybody does where I'm from. Like you go to college until you either graduate or you run out of your parents' money. And uh, then you come back home and you either work on the farm or you just get some job back in town. And that's kind of where you're at. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the Marine was there and, and, and it, he, I went up to his table and started talking to him at lunch and just, you know, we talked a little bit and he's like, what are you going to do when you get out of high school? And I, you know, I puffed my chest up and I was like, well, I'm going to go play football somewhere. And he's like, yeah, that's what I would do too. There's no way you'd ever make it as a Marine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and, and I think that, I think that like for a lot of us uh, that, that are Marines or that serve in the military or whatever, um, it's about the challenge, right? It's about the challenge to, 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 to accept it. And, and that's what mm-hmm. the Marine did. He accepted, he, you know, he, he laid the challenge out there. I left that, that evening or that actually I left that day to go sign up, um, signed up. My dad came in and, and, you know, uh, had no clue what I was doing. My dad thought I was going to college and then, you know, now I'm telling him going to the Marine Corps and, um, signed up for infantry. And, and I, that, that was kind of it. Like I left my hometown after, uh, after finishing up the school year. And I actually spent my 17th birthday or my 18th birthday inside boot camp. Wow. Now you were, so what was that? 2000? 2006. 2006. Yeah. Cause you said you, you say you were 13 when we were attacked on nine 11. Okay. So 2006, you sign up, you go, I love this from, um, this is from your, your first book, um, where you write into the fire, where you write. So it began the close haircuts to strip away your old identity exercises to prove you're not half as strong as you figured, simple tasks that show you are mentally weak, drill instructors who mock your attempts to look tough. It's right out of the movies, but it never stops. I never thought about it all that way. Close haircuts to strip away your old identity, like trying to kind of break you down. They're trying to break you down, humble you, get everybody even, and then build you back up. Yeah. I mean, you know, boot camp is kind of like when you, you know, after you're out of it, uh, and you start looking back at it, you know, the Marine Corps has got it, got it figured out, right? Like, you know, one of the things that I think the Marine Corps does better than any other branch is they teach the history. Uh, they teach, you know, the, they, they, so they spend the, I, I look at it like this, you know, it's, it's, it's 10, 10 to 12 weeks. So let's say 12 weeks. So they spend the first month, you know, breaking you down, uh, taking away your identity. Uh, and then they spend the next four weeks, teaching you about the history, about the battles, about the men before you who, who had this title Marine and they build this sense of pride, um, a pride about that and about what the Marine Corps truly is. And then they spend the last four weeks teaching you how to live up and how to live with honor and, and go out and represent and, and do that. And so just a, such a, such an incredible process transformation. I, I can't say that it definitely wasn't the hardest school that I'd gone to, uh, while I was in the Marine Corps, but it was by far the most transforming, life-changing school that I'd ever gone to uh, as far as like changing up the whole dynamic of, of how you think about how you see things um, and obviously, you know, preparing you for war. Mm. Well, that's how I felt when I did my two days becoming a Marine at Camp Lejeune for TV. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, was yeah I bet it was probably the same thing. Totally identical. 
<laughs> I did not, however, get the tattoo in Latin on my chest. Can you tell us what you what you opted for and why you put it in Latin? You know, so I get asked this a lot. Um, the funny story is I went in and I just I became a sniper and I wanted to get this. I'd seen this tattoo somewhere. Uh, I don't know where. And I was maybe 19 years old. And I went into this. I lived in Hawaii and I went to this this tattoo parlor and I said, hey, I, I want to get this tattoo on my chest. It says your death is my life in Latin or no, I didn't say in Latin. I said English. And, you know. Thank God for the the tattoo artist who looked at me and said, hey, man, like, I'll do whatever you want, right? Because you're paying for it. But I really would not get it in English. <laughs> and um, he said, he said, why don't you get it in Latin? He's like, man, like, can you imagine? He's like, you're walking across the beach with your kids one day and uh, says your death is my life across your chest. And I was like... I mean, at that point, I was like, I'm never having kids. You kidding me? Like, what? that'll never happen. And um, yeah, so I'm really thankful that, that, that I got that. In life. Yeah, it's one thing if you're in Afghanistan. It's quite another if you're in your personal life without your Marine gear on. Um, yeah, so your death is my life, which actually is not a bad message when you're sh- staring down the, the Taliban. So I like that. OK, so so there you go. Um, and off you go. You went to Iraq and Iraq first. Right. And then Afghanistan after. Yeah, I went to Iraq first. So I was in Fallujah, uh, you know, and I was part of the surge, right, in 2007. Yeah. Um, we, we surged all, you know, that, all the troops. That was over. a rough was, time. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, look, for us, like the Iraq deployment was pretty easy. I mean, it, you know, we, we took some mortars and stuff, maybe a little bit of small arms fire, but nothing. Like, it was not crazy at all in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was only there for maybe 45 days. 30 to 45 days, uh, due to, I got bit on my, my right hand by a spider. I had uh, nerve damage. Like I was got, I had two surgeries in fluja surgical. What? And then, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like I actually lost like, all the movement in my last three fingers. Um, so yeah. What, what so kind of spider was that? What's that? Can you just spend one second on that? Cause now everybody's going to be freaked out about the next spider they encounter. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what kind it was. I mean, they said something like a desert recluse. So I guess maybe it's a, I don't know, who knows? It sounds made up. But um, they uh, they sent me back to uh, to Germany, and I was in, you know, I was in Germany. Like, I had to go to occupational therapy to get my oh, my hands uh, moving again. I honestly thought I was going to get medsepped out of the Marine Corps, and uh, I just worked on my hands uh, the rest of the deployment, being back home. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even remember. I was, we were actually in a. We were out in the house, and uh, I do remember the mission though, because we had ran this mission to a place called Banana Town, and we were going to go out there for a couple of days, and uh, just trying to see uh, if there was. We knew there was some enemy, some enemy uh, that, that they've been uh, freely moving out there, and so we had gone out, set up in this house, and and it turned into a mess right off the. We only stayed there for a night because. Um, so basically, when we come in and we we would take over these houses, what we would do is we would sneak in in the middle of the night, right? And so they usually the families would sleep outside. And so they'd be sleeping out on the ground somewhere. So we'd find them. We'd have like a couple guys just overwatching them, watching them as they sleep while we went in and like we'd search the house and we'd make sure we'd get eyes on the position we wanted. And then uh, we'd wait until they woke up and then we'd bring them inside and they had to sit with us until we left. And so uh, this night, I remember, I don't know what caused it, but like, there's so many dogs in Iraq and, uh, well, 
or Afghanistan, but there was just a ton of dogs. And I remember the dogs barking so much that, um, that it woke the neighbors up. And so once they seen us, we had to go grab them as well. And so then it woke the other neighbors up. It woke the other neighbors up. And so like, I had 32 people, like almost the entire village inside of this one house with us, but we couldn't let them go because we were afraid they'd go tell the, tell mm-hmm. Al Qaeda or whoever that was there um, where we were at. So we had to hold on to them until that night. And then that night we just, we bailed out, but I got bit on my hand and uh, got back to base. And like my hand was just swollen up. It was huge. I couldn't move my three fingers. Um, they did and a surgery a in Fallujah, uh, gave me a few days to heal. It didn't heal back did another surgery and then they met it back me out, uh, back home to the States. Yeah. That's, it's a problem. If you're a sniper, you need your hands, you need your fingers and they need to be in good working order. Okay. So you, you go, you get deployed again to Afghanistan and is it with the same unit? You know, the guys who we would come to know through your story in, um, forgive me on the pronunciation's weird. How do you pronounce the, the, the town? Ganj? Ganjigal. Ganjigal, Ganjigal. Uh, is it the same unit that you were deployed with in Iraq? No. So like I was actually, so I came back, uh, went to mountain sniper school in between deployments and I became a sniper team leader. So I actually had my own team and we were getting ready to head back to Iraq again, like in the 2009 timeframe. But, you know, there really wasn't much going on in Iraq at that point. We didn't even have a mission. And so I remember we were at 29 Palms and my gunny comes and says, Hey, look, we need five volunteers to go to Afghanistan. And I said, what's the mission going to be? And he said, well, I don't, I don't really, um, I don't really know, but like, we just need five volunteers. So you all can either start volunteering or I'm going to start picking. And so I raised my hand, you know, I knew that was where the fight was. I mean, that's what we've been hearing. That's where we'd all hoped to have gone. And, um, I just thought it might be an opportunity to, to go get in a fight. And, um, uh, and you know, I was right, obviously. And yes. so ended up going and I detached from my sniper unit and I went and uh, attached to a, 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 what's called an embedded training team. And so the mindset behind these embedded training teams are that we go over and advise the, you know, the local army, the Afghan national army on how to do everything from logistics to weapons training to basically train them on how to build their own military up. You know, the, the, the theory is, is that if they can, we can train them up and they can do it themselves and then they take care of their own country. Right. But we see how that ended up. Mm. And, um, so that was our, our job. And so I was going to, I was stationed on a base with four U S and 80 Afghans, um, on this base in Afghanistan. So let's talk a bit about the guys who are at the center of this story. Um, in, in the book, you refer to Doc Layton, our Corsman, and that's that's Corsman James Layton. Uh, that's let's start with him. How did you how did you get to know him? What was he like? You know, Doc, Doc Layton, um, you know, look, Corman, Corman are the angels of the Marine Corps. Um, I mean, the, these are the guys who literally put their life on the line. Yeah, they're Navy Corman and they but but they're. I mean, what, what docs do is, is second to none um, for Marines. I mean, these guys take care of us. They, they, they patch us up on the battlefield, you know, and they're right there with us, right? Their primary job is to, 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 to patch us up. But, like, you know, look, they're, they're in the fight with us. And, um, you know, Doc Layton was such a, such a good guy. You know, he was from, he was from uh, 
he was from California and uh, he, he just, he was from California. He had this like surfer attitude, uh, this smile, this smirk he had it very like introvert, but just had these one liners and um, didn't say a lot. Didn't really like, it was just laid back. Did not, did not care. You couldn't bother him. And um, just very laid back. And okay. he always, he always called me dude and had long hair and just, you know, uh, just <laughs> such an incredible guy. And then there was uh, Sergeant Aaron Kennefick, uh, gunnery Sergeant Aaron Kennefick, a New Yorker. Yeah. Tell us about him. Yeah. So, you know, Gunny, Gunny Kennefick was like, uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm from Kentucky. I mean, obviously, even Rob O'Neill says, you know, I kind of talk slow. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Kentucky and like we live life different than New York. And, you know, so when I first met Gunny Kinnefick and, and he was the old man at the team, I think he was like 30 at the time, which is crazy. Um, but, you know, he's an old man at the team. He was a Gunny. He uh, he had this like I called it the New York chip on his shoulder, you know, like uh, just he had that just that attitude. Right. And uh, just a good guy. But he always had his he always had his little sayings like you know, all right, all right, all right. Or he would like, I mean, he just, he always, I mean, hey, Mar, I'll see you on the flip side. And, and look, me and Gunny didn't, when we first got there, like, we didn't get along. Like, he couldn't stand that. I mean, I, I, I was, I mean, I was a sniper, right? And, and look, we're, we're known for, for not really caring much about how we look and looking good and looking the part, we care about doing the job and, you know, look, both are important, but he was more on the, what we call the flagpole side. And I was more on the, the field side. And, and, you know, he just, he, he didn't like it. He didn't like how nasty I was, which, which, you know, I'm not saying he was wrong. Um, but we butted heads a lot. Like we butted heads a lot. And uh, you know, but, but, you know, we, it's kind of crazy how the, the relationship progressed and, and how close we were, you know, right before he got killed. Yeah, and I know you say uh, he's he had movie star good looks. He did. He did. <laughs> you can see that in the pictures. Yeah, he was like had sort of that the broad shoulders and the 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 good size head and the jawline and yeah, all of that. Yeah. So uh, you were you were ultimately in a good place together, which you write about having a couple of close calls that worked to your advantage. Um, Sergeant Edwin Johnson, tell us about Edwin. So you know Gunny Johnson. Uh, Gunny Johnson. So he was on, so we, we were part of a 21 man team and they split that up into, you know, teams that are throughout the area of operations that we were part of. And that's why I broke down into a four man team with Kennefick and them. And so Gunny Johnson's actually the, the, the person who replaced me that day on the mission. Uh, Gunny Johnson's such an incredible guy. Like he loved CrossFit. Uh, he was always working out just, just a jacked up guy. He had like the softest voice. Like if you've seen him, like you're like, oh yeah, this guy's got a deep voice. But like he just this huge guy had the soft voice and just such a loving, caring guy. And uh, you know, it was definitely a guy that took care of Marines and and just really, really nice guy. Mm-hmm. And this and th- is he the one who's from Virginia? You said he was from Virginia by birth, but was now Mr. Oregon. No, no, this is so this that's so there was two Johnson Johnsons, Lieutenant Johnson. So Lieutenant okay. Johnson, the next one. Okay. Yeah. So Lieutenant Johnson was Lieutenant Michael Johnson. Uh, and he's the guy in your book, you read about how he was in tremendous shape and at sunset would muster us out for a hundred pushups, a hundred, 200 sit-ups and 10 laps around the perimeter, which made me think avoid, this is me, avoid, avoid Lieutenant Michael Johnson at all costs. If, it, if it's sunset. Yeah. He, he loved, 
he loved CrossFit too, right? Uh, just such a laid back guy. Uh, de- we were definitely opposites, right? I mean, I was wound tight. I still probably am a little bit. And, uh, you know, gu- gu- or Lieutenant Johnson was just, you know, I, I, like an example of him was that we would be going on these these missions. And, you know, a- Afghanistan, where we were at, northeastern Afghanistan is very, very hilly. Um, it's very, you know, the terrain is just incredible. And so we would be going and uh, he'd be like, Mar, Mar, like, don't don't you just love like the views right and i and i was like i was always i was in the front i was like ah well you know sir uh i I, i'm not really looking at the views i'm trying to make sure we don't get blown up and uh you know just (laughs) it was just always how laid back and positive he was and and just you know he was just every every patrol for for lieutenant johnson was for sure a nature hike wow and well look he's appreciating the sunset he's from oregon you know the pacific northwest is sort of like that it's beautiful they appreciate the beauty it's it's nice to get to know these guys a little you know it's like you hear these news stories and you just hear about the awful end and it's so much just a such a better experience for everyone i'm sure including their loved ones if you can just get to know these guys a little bit and and figure out what made all of you so close what made all of you click what what made it such a special unit. Um, September 8, 2009. Okay. So you are told a Tuesday, you are told that there's been some progress in meeting with, I guess, tribal leaders there and that we're going to send some guys back in to go try to have some talks. And, and we decide, I guess the, we, the Americans decide to send some of our our Afghan representatives, our Afghan friends to go in there. And and were you guys going, especially these four, to protect them? You know, like, so it's all about the optics of it, right? Part of the strategy was trying to build the confidence in the Afghan National Army, right? Obviously mm-hmm. supported by us. Right. Um, so that that's kind of the optics of it, right? Like, uh, it, it, you know, the, the that piece. And so, you know, what had happened was is, there have been some TIF, and, and I, I wasn't even aware of this. I mean, we get rocketed all the time, you know, bombed all the time. And plus, this was another base. Um, so we weren't even aware of it. But I guess, like, somebody got killed. And and long story short, the, the Ganjigal people had said that they wanted to renounce themselves from the Taliban. And so this is huge, right? I mean, look, in theory, again, I like to say in theory, I say it a lot. But, like, in theory, you know, the, if they renounce themselves from the Taliban – it, it stops the freedom of movement from the Taliban. They start supporting the government. You know, th- these are, th- this is, this is, you know, a, a textbook of how you, how it should play out. Um, so what we were doing that day is, is the, the, we were going to go in and we were just having a, literally a, a town meeting that we do all the time. We, we have meetings with our locals all the time and we were going to go in and have a town meeting and, and, uh, just go in there and see how we could support them. They said they needed support. They would renounce themselves from the Taliban as long as we could provide some security. They, I'm sure they want, you know, who knows what they want, right? Like probably a school, some roads or, or whatever, right? And so they just needed some support for the government and they would start supporting the government. And so that was kind of what our mission was that day. 
Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds, and stores for 15 years. You'll also also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's arkseedkits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. arcseedkits.com. Okay, so you go, and you were supposed to be one of the leading four guys, as you point out. Uh, instead, Sergeant Aaron Kennefick, I'm sorry, Corsman, yeah, Sergeant Edwin Johnson went uh, in your stead. You were low man on the totem pole, so why did that happen? Why did he replace you? You know, like, uh, so I'll say on this patrol, I was the only infantryman. So let me, let me, let me start with that, right? And no, nothing against it, but I mean, this, is, this was part of what we did for a living, right? Um, and so going in you know i i listened to the mission brief the night before and part of the brief was that that there was a few pieces of it that i didn't agree with and and you know one of them being that that we were going to be on everybody was going to be on one uh one radio channel right and 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 i'm going to say these because i think that you know i think it's important that that these are kind of simple i'm not trying to change up the wheel but or you know reinvent the wheel but you know there there was going to be over if I count up just off the top of my head, four or five, six, I mean, at least six or seven different moving elements on one radio channel, right? Imagine having six or seven different people on, on a phone call, right? I think we all know how that goes. And then um, I, had, I, I said that wasn't a good idea. And then I said uh, another aspect was I wanted to bring the trucks in, right? So like when they walked in, they wanted to walk in, which to show a softer presence, but they also gave me the excuse that they wanted to go in clandestine, but you, you can't do that with 90 people, um, which was, it was a dumb comment anyways. And so for me, like I thought it made sense to bring the trucks in behind the team. So that way, if, if you know, if, if they got set up then, or not set up, but if they took contact or got into a gunfight, then we would have our biggest guns in the fight. Right. And there would be armor there and, you know, it'd be, it, it would just provide more reinforcements that we already had. They yeah. didn't want to do that either. And then uh, the other aspect of it was, was the, was the air. And like, you know, we didn't, we didn't have air direct, uh, which, which happens sometimes, which, but, but I just didn't think that it was a smart idea to go in here without air direct in a, in a place that we knew we were going to take contact at. We had never, uh, I think the other teams had gone in there once or twice before and every time they get shot at. Right. And so because of these factors, um, they end up just taking me out of the team. Uh, so you had to say, did you have to stay back at base then? No. So like my job was going to be that when we drove in, they left me at the trucks. Right. So, so you're like, off we campus. Visit. You're not, we you're gonna, not back at base, but you're off campus and you're not in the middle of the action. I'm kind of probably a mile away. Okay. And how many of you are there in your spot? Uh, there was three of us. Okay. But the commanding officers, they're back at the base. 
Yeah. Okay. No, well, yeah. So the commanding officers, yeah, we're back at the base. We, I mean, we had our, we had a major and our first sergeant with us, our team, our team leaders. Uh, they were there, but like the whole team, uh, team CEO, CEO or whatever. So they were with us. But as far as like the army, so we, we were supported because in this area, this was the army's area of operation. So everything we did as far as our, I mean, everything was supported from the army as far as air, as far as artillery, uh, mm-hmm. as far as even quick reaction force was supported supplied by the army so we relied on them a lot and um yeah so all these the but but the top top commanding officers were for sure sitting on base so you're sitting there and you're you got to be a little nervous because obviously just given the circumstances and then i know somebody uh kept saying bad people looking into the city and and where these guys were going bad place bad people it's low ground uh which is as you explained not where you want to be if you're in the military. You always want to be up on the higher ground so you can see everything and not the lower ground. God forbid somebody hits you. You can be seen very easily. And yet this is this is what was arranged and this is what was asked of you and, they, and off they go. And so how long are you waiting before you realize it's an ambush? Well, I'll never forget. So like that morning going in, um, you know, so we drove in and I was in the, the, the turret, the up gun. Uh, Gunny just explain that. Driving. Sorry, Dakota. Just explain what that is for our audience. Yeah. So, so I was in the turret. So, like, basically the uh, the armored the gun that's on top of the the Humvee, right? So I was I was up there. I was I was manning that position uh, on the way in, and then uh, Gunny Kinnefick was driving. Lieutenant Johnson was in the passenger seat. Uh, Doc Layton was in the back seat, and then our interpreter Fazel was in the other back seat. And you know, like, obviously, this is hindsight to twenty twenty, right? But like driving in. I remember that morning we didn't even talk about the mission. You know, usually on a mission like this, we're talking about checkpoints. We're talking about plans and we didn't even mention it. All we talked about on the way in that morning was, um, was home. And, uh, all we talked about was like how, whose house we were going to first and, and, uh, how we were going to hang out and, and kind of, like <laughs> I don't know, we laid out this whole elaborate life plan of how we were going to find a way to still be together and hang out. And, mm-hmm. um, I look back at it. It's like, you know, that's what we do when we're scared. Right. You know, a lot of people look at, at, at service members or military as crude or as, 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 you know, heartless. But when you, you know, in these team situations, especially small team situations that are so critical, part of getting through them is, is, is having the ultimate poker face, right? Like you can't, you know, these guys might be looking at you wondering, Hey, should I be scared or not? And you don't want to ever, you know, um, you don't ever want to show you're scared because right. it might be what breaks or makes that team. And so having confidence and, and being able to control those emotions and, and staying stoic in these situations is what has to happen. And so a lot of times what we do is we just have conversations about stuff that don't even, you know, kind of try to ignore it. Right. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, that whole way in, you could just tell that everybody was scared. Everybody knew what was about to happen, uh, that it was not going to be good. And so we got in and parked that that morning and it was still pitch black. And I remember we parked and, and, and he shut the uh, Kenefic shut the truck off. And Lieutenant Johnson, I told Lieutenant Johnson, I said, hey, look, if anything goes bad, just get to the road and I'll come get you. And. Uh, you know, like, so that was the plan. And, and, and Kenefic said, you know, or not Kenefic, but John, Lieutenant Johnson said, he goes, Meyer, you know what, like that's what we're going to do. And he goes, I know you're crazy enough to come get us. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'll never forget Kenneth. got out and it was pitch black and he started walking 
And uh, he said, uh, Myra, I'll, I'll see you on the flip side. And, uh, you know, they all walked off into the dark. And, and it, it was probably, you know, the, as they were going in, there were goat herders passing us, right? Like there were the elders, a lot of the elders were passing us. And, and like, I, I would get off the truck. I got on the hood of the truck and I would go down and I'd try to shake their hands and stuff, uh, you know, just to try to have a conversation. You can tell a lot about how people view you by just yeah. a, a conversation. Right. And, um, a lot of these people wouldn't even talk to us. Like they just look at us now. I'll never forget. They were, they were taking their, their rosary beads or, or whatever it was. And, and they were just like holding them and holding on. And it was just a, you just had this eerie feeling and like women and kids were just leaving like masses. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we knew that, that, that there was going to be a fight, right? They're, they're not just leaving because, you know, it's not a coincidence. But and wait, so, wait, wait. Uh, but let me stop you there. How did you, I mean, like I see you, th- these are signs that there's going to be a fight, but we didn't actually know because it, we were caught by surprise. That was part of the problem. Right. So what do you explain that? What do you mean? Well, I mean, look, I mean, this is, this is the, the I'm saying like all these signs are, are stuff we've seen before. Right. Like, so these it, guys have come, gone in, they've left you, they're going in and you're seeing these signs and you're thinking, I have a bad feeling. Oh Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, you know, but before, even before this aspect of it, I, I took my thermals, like, you know, it's a heat seeking device, right? It's, it seeks heat, it sees heat uh, or senses heat. And I could see people running up the edges of the mountains and uh, you know, look, they weren't going out to get their, their morning, you know, their, their morning run in. And so, you know, all these are signs that, 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 that they're going up to their fighting positions. Right. And, and I tried to call over the radio and said, Hey, we got guys going up the, the side of the mountains. And I was told, get off the radio. You're tying up the net. Right. It's, it's like a, like a, it was like a, a push on me of like, Hey, you brought up that this is going to be an issue. And now you're the one tying the net up. And, and, and it was just like, so ignoring all the signs, uh, so complacent is what it was. And, um, you know, my team was at the front of the patrol on this, this 90 man patrol, right. You know, you're, you're kind of walking in. I don't want to say like follow the leader, but it is kind of like follow the leader. Right. And, um, you know, my team and my Afghans were up front of this patrol as they had them. Um, everybody else was dispersed out to the back. And, uh, you know, as soon as they got in there, I mean, it was, it was just like all the lights in the village flipped off at the same time. And then it was just a fight. Like it was just a fight. Oh my God. I can't imagine the feeling that goes through your body at that moment that you realize this whole thing has been a setup. You're on the outside. These guys in your unit are in the inside and you must feel powerless in the moment or in a something close to panic to get in there. You, you, you explain it. How, what, what is that feeling when you realize it, the whole thing's an ambush? Well, I think, I think in the beginning when this thing hit off, I mean, look, We've been in we'd been in quite a few gunfights at this point, right? Like in the beginning of it, like it's always chaotic. I mean, it's just you know you're trying to figure out where they're at, you know, and you're trying to do all this while you're getting shot at. So like they're trying, you know, where they're at, where you're at, what do we have to help with this? And then you just you know you start fighting. Um, and, and so for me, I would say in the beginning, I wasn't worried about my team, honestly at the beginning, I was just pissed off that I wasn't involved in the fight. Right. Like I was just mad that, that I wasn't, that they were getting some and I wasn't, you know what I mean? Like that yeah, was, yeah, that's a, that's that a was probably the first for reason I was mad. Um, 
And yeah, obviously I was eager to get in there. I was, I wanted to go fight. I wanted to go get some, you know, like I, I, I was mad. My team was gonna, was gonna, you know, get some and I wasn't. And, uh, and then like, after I started listening to the radio traffic, then it got real. Uh, I think it was at the point that I heard Lieutenant Johnson come over the radio and he stated that, uh, that he needed a support artillery mission. And basically he gave this, it's a grid location or no, not a grid location. He gave a, a polar mission, which is basically you say where you're at, you give your location, then you give the distance and direction of where you want these rounds at. And then they, 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 they sling rounds on that, that location. Right. And so he gave this perfect format and uh, I'll never forget. They said uh, the, the rounds are too close to the village. And he said, uh, the village is shooting at us. Like I need these rounds. And he, what he was trying to do is he was trying to place these rounds between him and the village, kind of building a wall. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. trying to give him some, some, uh, relief to be able to, to, to disperse back and, and get out of there. And, uh, I, I'll never forget. He said, uh, they said, no, it's too close to the village. Give us another location. He said, if you don't give me these rounds right now, we are going to die. Mm. And uh, the response he got back was, well, try your best. And so at that point, I knew that we had to do something. Um, I looked at Rodriguez Chavez, who was just such an incredible human being. Uh, He was a motor T guy. And I, I said, hey, I said, hey, Rod, like, like we got to go in. And so I requested four times, three or four times over the radio uh, to go in. And, and my idea was, Hey, I'm going to bring this gun truck in. And each time I was told no. And so finally I, uh, so finally I, I just said like, let's go. Well, let me just and, back you up. Let me back you up there. So you say uh, we got to get in there and you can hear these guys on the radio saying, send us, send us support. Uh, we need our artillery support and they needed helicopter support and, and the helicopter support was promised and then not delivered. They said, we'll yeah. be there in 15 minutes. And and they didn't send it. And that was overruled, as I understand it, back at the home base. And then they yeah. said, and, and these guys were, these guys are insider. And, you, and I mean, 15 minutes has got to be an eternity when you're in their position. And it happened repeatedly. Yeah, I mean, it was over. I mean, it was well over an hour before helicopters showed up. <sighs> And, and that was by design. I mean, that's what's so crazy about the story. And there will be discipline that results from all of this later. But th- there there had been two, as I understand it, commanding officers back at the base making the decision not to send it. That, like they they told the guys on the inside they'd it'd be there in 15 minutes and then they chose not to send it. Yeah. So what happened was and so on that aspect of it, I mean, so part of my thing was my problem was is they kept saying, well, so the, the team went in the overall team went in with this, you know, with this false assumption that it would be there in 15 minutes. So I do remember that, that in the mission, it was supposed to be on 15 minute strip alert. Right. And so let me explain what that means. So all that means is, is that the, the, the helicopter must take off within 15 minutes. And that's from Jalalabad. Jalalabad was probably a 35, 40 minute flight. I don't know exactly, but 35, 40 minute flight on top of that. And then the other aspect of it is, is there's priorities inside of, you know, of who gets air and who doesn't. Right. And so, you know, like if, uh, and what happened that day was it's like perfect storm still, you know, one of the SEAL teams got into a gunfight 
up in the Corngall Valley. They were going after an HVT. And so they obviously rated uh, aircraft above us. And so part of that was justified. The other part of it that wasn't justified was uh, there was an aspect of it where they air did break loose and was able to come help us. Uh, but then, yeah, somebody else shut it down. So at least one of those was a conscious decision not to send the helicopter support. Yes. Not to prioritize somebody else, but just not to send it. And what what was the stated reason for that? Because you're living this on the outside, like you're watching this happen. What was the stated reason for that? Uh, I mean, we, we, we didn't have one. I mean, no, no, nobody gave us one. I mean, honestly, it comes down to the egos between the Marines and the, and the, and the Army. Um, and and, and I, I can give you a statement in a minute that was said over the radio that, that proves that. But, yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was clear, egotistical, typical non-communication between two, two, you know, two units. Uh, I mean, this is this is, you know, this is what happens when, uh, you know, these two don't communicate on the battlefield. And, and it happens a lot. Mm. Uh, you, you like to think there's no team rivalry when when you're out there. You like to think it's all about Team America versus Team Taliban. I guess, you know, that's that's naive. The yeah. the um, request for artillery support was was also not met. As you said, they said you're too close to the village. Meanwhile, the village is gone. The village ran and the Taliban has taken over the homes of the village, right? I mean, it's like, what village? Yeah, well, so so let me tell you where this problem came in, right? Uh, so this was a rule of engagement that Stan McChrystal put in place. Um, you know, Stan McChrystal put into place, uh, it was a, again, I don't know verbatim, but about 30 to 45 days before this incident, uh, there was a rule of engagement that was in place that stated, I, I can't remember the exact numbers or perimeter of how far you could not drop artillery uh, within a village. Uh, and, and, and it stated that you couldn't drop the rounds or munitions within X amount of radius of the village unless, now get this, unless you had gone through the village and cleared it to make sure that there were no civilians and only enemy combatants. Oh, how are you supposed to? It's like, that's not exactly practicable in a situation like this. That's the problem, right? When you have commanding officers or generals writing these rules in a rule book, and then you guys are left to live it and be forced to live it, even when you can look at the situation and say that rule should not apply here. Yeah, that's yeah. why. I mean, frankly, Dakota, that's why you have commanding officers, because they just, you, they're not monkeys. We need thinking men out there to say I'm not following that rule right now because the village has left. They've left the building. Well, this is the problem, right? Uh, rule followers are, are, are leaders, are, are, are made leaders over competent people, right? Competent people challenge policies and rules written by people who shouldn't be writing rules and policies. Uh, but, but rule followers don't. Rule followers follow the rules and therefore... They, you know, that that is what that is what we look for or that is what that is what leadership is uh, that, you know, because they they get rid of people who are competent and people who challenge and make people have to think outside the box of what rules and regulations are. Mm, so incredibly frustrating. So you're watching all of this, the delays, the refusals, the blind adherence to rules that make no sense, given the actual combat situation. And then you say, let me go in there. I mean, it's basically a send me in coach. And the answer is no. Yeah. So time- we asked to go in and we're, we're told no. And so I, I had a Mark 19, which is a, a 40 millimeter grenade launcher. Uh, 
uh, on my up gun. And then I also had a 240 machine gun. There's just a, another, just a gun. Right. And so finally I looked at Rod and, and or Rodriguez Chavez. I said, Hey, look, we got to go. We got to do something. Um, and, uh, he's like, yeah, we do. And so I got my Afghan soldiers, they jumped in their trucks and we just headed in. And like, as soon as we started heading in, we started taking rounds. I mean, we started, but I wait, mean, started wait, but wait, before you, so you, you, you're like kind of jumping over the part that's, this is important because you were told no. And then you yeah. asked again, I mean, you did try to follow the rule. And, I did. Yeah. And I, mean, were, I requested three or four times. Yeah. You were told times. no. You asked a third time you were told no. And then it was really at that point that you said, I'm not listening to no anymore. I'm going. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the last call that I said over the radio was be advised if I mean, my, my, uh, my call sign was Fox three, three. So I said, be advised Fox three, three is, uh, we were on our way in and, uh, that was it. And so we did you had did it from the guys who were telling, you, no, were they like, get back here, Fox three, three, like what happened there? I, I don't, I didn't listen. I just set my radio down. That was irrelevant at that point. So in you go. And yeah, this I mean, is not, it's still know, the fighting's underway. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, my, my teammate, I could hear, I could hear my, uh, I heard on, as soon as we left, I heard the, uh, Gunny, Gunny Kinnefick come over the radio and he stated that they needed a medical evacuation. And so look, that obviously tells you somebody has been injured. And, uh, so I knew so I always kept a Sharpie in my, in my gear. Right. So like I always kept a Sharpie in case I need to write something or, or whatever. Right. And, uh, I pulled that out because I knew that if, if I could get, I knew with this medevac that he would have to give a, a 10 digit grid. And so I knew if I could get that grid, I could put it on a map and then I could figure out where they were. And, uh, you know, everybody was stepping on them. I mean, there's tons of chaos. You, know, you got people trying to call in artillery, you got people needing help people trying to talk where they're at and all this chaos. And he's finally, Kenefick said, get off the radio. I've got a medevac. And so everybody shut off and he started to give the location and stopped. So we headed on in and we, we took the truck on into this Valley. And so as we come around this Valley, it's like a, it was like a wash, right? It was like a, a riverbed that led up to, up to this village. And as we come around this turn, they had stacked these rocks. They tried to make these rocks, put these rocks on the road to where a Humvee couldn't fit through it, right? Like they, they tried to use these as like barriers. And uh, Rodriguez Chavez, I'll never forget, he was hitting these rocks. And I knew that if he ever slowed down or stopped, that we were sitting ducks. Like they would overrun us in no time. So it was a pretty, 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 pretty nerve wracking situation. And so as we came around, went in and uh as soon as we turned right up this 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 uh riverbed and like i said on the, on the way in there were all these people walking out and they were just wounded i mean they were carrying each other it was during ramadan as well so none of them had been eating or drinking water during the day because of ramadan and so it's just like it's a perfect combination it's it's, it's crazy hot um and all these people are wounded and just like mangled and like, I didn't know what I was driving into. And so as we turn up this valley or we turn up this, this riverbed, it was just like, there were bodies everywhere. It was just complete chaos. Mm. So you come into it and there's, they're shooting at you. 
and you're manning, as I understand, the turret and and fighting back with the with the gun, fighting back at the at the fire as it comes at you. And what's your main focus at that point? Honestly, all I could think about was finding my teammates. Like, like literally, as much as I want to say that I cared about saving anybody else, like I, I didn't. Like, I just, I had to find them. Like, I just, all I could think about was I needed to find them. I, I promised them that, that that I would find them, that I would get to them. And I truly thought that, hey, they're going to get to the road. They're waiting on me. I just need to get this truck up the road as far as I can. And, um, and I'm going to get them out. Mm-hmm. And so- uh, that was, that was my that was my thought pattern. And I, you know, on the first trip in, like literally these people are trying to jump on the truck. Like I, I mean, I would like my, my gun, like, you know, on, on top of the truck, I'm sure you can imagine, but like, you know, you can only push it down so far, right. Cause it'll hit the side of the truck. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and these guys were so close that my gun wouldn't even, I couldn't even shoot them. And so I would have to pull up out of the turret and I would just, I would shoot them with my M4 out of the, out of the top of the turret and uh the rounds were literally it sounded like static over my head like rounds were like they would hit inside the turret you know because they had the turret didn't protect you much because right. when they had the high ground on you they can shoot down in it they have the angle on it and it was just it was so chaotic like i i, I was always the guy who imagined the worst case scenarios and this was worse than any worst case scenario i could ever imagine and uh, I remember with the first trip in, we, we shoved the truck up as far as we could. And I, I hadn't heard from my team or anything. And I honestly thought they maybe lost their radio or broke it. And they got into a house and they're defending a house. And um, I remember we pulled up as far as we could in this village. And uh, my, I feel on my, my right hand, I just, like, it just got, ex- like, I know it sounds stupid, but like extra wet, right? Like, it just wasn't sweat. And I look over and just blood bloods everywhere and i'm like gosh i've been hit and uh i fall down in the turret and uh i i see that i have a piece of i had a piece of shrapnel in my up in my arm mm-hmm. and uh I, I wrapped it up and just got back on the gun when i knew i was all right i got back on the gun we, we turned the truck around uh we didn't see we couldn't find anybody and at this point there were there were bodies everywhere and like a lot of them were afghan national army or, or soldiers and so what, what I, I found my interpreter, my interpreter got in the truck. He got in the, the, the machine gun. He got on the gun up top. And then I would get out and I would run and try to provide aid to these, these Afghan National Army soldiers. And, you know, I would get to them and, and uh, I'd put tourniquets on them if I could. I would try to get an airway on them. Sometimes I'd have to like lay next to them for a little bit because like I would, I would get there and then I would start getting shot at and I'd have to fight. And uh what i would do is i'd bring them back and i I put them in the trunk of the humvee and so we filled up the first humvee and we left like the the, we we went back out they dropped me off at like kind of the mouth like where i told you the the first part was when we turned back into the the riverbed so i staged there and and we started building what, what we call a casualty collection point right so it was kind of like the the first safe zone not i mean not safe but not not really combatant but like that would be our first area we dropped these bodies off at. So we did. And uh, Rodriguez Chavez had to go get another another truck because the gun was down and, and there was like the truck was tore up. And we were almost out of ammo. And so I went and got another truck, came back in. I jumped in that truck. We went in again. 
And so at this time, we, we got the Afghan soldiers to bring their, they had these like uh, Ford Rangers. And so they would bring them in. And what I would do is I would jump out. Rod stayed, Rodriguez Chavez stayed in the driver's seat because like you didn't want to give the driver's seat up. I mean, imagine right. if the enemy got, got the Humvee, right? Okay. And so he stayed in the driver's seat. Uh, um, Fazel, the interpreter, stayed on the up gun. And then I was going out and I was just grabbing the bodies and bringing them back. And what I would do is I would fill the the bed of these trucks up with the bodies, right? And I would I would put the dead ones on the bottom, and then the ones that had a chance to live, I I put them on top. And we just kept doing this. We did it like three or four trips. The University of Austin is a new university dedicated to the fearless pursuit of truth. At UATX, a culture of free, open inquiry and civil discourse helps us break through barriers instead of walking on eggshells. Students will feel at home in our downtown Austin campus. With guidance from world-class professors, they'll grapple with history's most important ideas. They'll learn through dialogue, without fear of censorship, while forming friendships that last a lifetime. They'll have unparalleled access to mentors in business, science, politics, and the arts and develop careers alongside Austin's leading entrepreneurs, builders, and founders. What's more, all students in the founding class will receive full tuition scholarships for all four years. Admissions are rolling for fall 2024. Apply to the University of Austin now at uaustin.org. Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds, and stores for 15 years. You'll also also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's arkseedkits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. arcseedkits.com. Dakota, do you ever think, you know, with all due respect to the Afghan National Army, I'm here to find four Marines and I can't risk my life spending time getting this guy and getting this guy and I'm not, you know, like I got, was there ever a thought, I don't have time for this and I'm not going to risk my life for these guys? No, no, because, you know, there is no, um, there is no prioritization uh, with, when it comes to just good and evil. And, uh, you know, these guys were on my team. Think about what you want about them. But, you know, like I, uh, you know, I, I don't feel like I just lost, uh, four guys that day. I mean, I, and I lost six, six Afghans. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, I knew those guys as good as I knew, I knew my Marines and, and I cared about them too. Right. I mean, you know, uh, you know, just, they they were good guys. They had families. Uh, we were just born in two different places. And so, no, I, I, I mean, 
obviously like I, I initially I went in there uh you know thinking about my marines but you know I at the end of the day I I did what they would have done for me and uh yeah no I I you know I, I love those guys you know like they we, we'd gone through some hard times together and and I'll be honest with you, you know, the, 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 uh, look, people, the, the Afghan national army gets a bad rap, you know, and they, and they're like, I, I don't know everybody else's experience, but what I'll say is my experience with the Afghan national army, uh, the core guys that I had, obviously there's good and bad. There's good and bad in the Marine Corps. There's, there's good and bad what I served with. There's good and bad in the army. There's good and bad in everything. Uh, but what I'll say is, is that the group of Afghans that I served with, uh, I don't know that I would pick Americans over them, uh, you know, the, as far as, as far as, you know, what I thought about their character. Wow. And a, and a lot of the guys who you saved were wounded and would have died if you hadn't gotten them out of there, not to mention the respect you showed for the Afghan dead in taking their bodies back to a place of safety or they could be delivered to loved ones. So you go back in. So that was time two. you still hadn't found the Americans. And so you went back in a, a third time. And at that point, had things died down at all in terms of the shooting? You know, like was the the static, as you described it, of the of the gunfire quieting at all? Yeah. So what would happen is, is so we, we we got a bunch of aircraft on on station. Right. And so I think it was on my first or second one of the times when I figured out where everybody else was. I got accountability for everybody else. Um, I came over the radio and finally said be advised, we have four U.S. missing, right? I knew that as soon as I said those words, that resources for days are allocated to us, right? Like now, now you, you don't want to, like, you only use those words when you need to, uh, mm-hmm. when it's very critical because, you know, you can't just use it just to get resources because you'll get in trouble. But, you know, um, they were missing. I didn't know where they were at. Nobody knew where they were at and we needed the resources. And so when I said that, like it goes up to a level that, that it, it, like it goes to the top. Right. And so uh, the prioritization of resources allocation comes to us. And, uh, and, and it did like, we had fast movers on stations, which are airplanes. Um, we had, uh, we ended up getting two Apaches. We got four Kiowas. So, you know, you start getting these allocations of, of resources that are needed and, uh, to be able to recover these bodies or to be able to hopefully, you know, recover the team alive. And so, uh, and then obviously they're going to launch uh, PJs, which is pararescue. And their their whole entire mission is to to get you know they're it's to get down pilots, but you know to recover recover teams. And so we got a, a team of PJs as well. And so you know we we what would happen is 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 while the aircraft were on station, you know the fighting would die down. But then when they'd leave, uh, you know to go refuel or resupply or whatever. They were there for less than five minutes because they were completely out of ammunition. Uh, that's, I mean, that, that's, that's where the situation was. So when they would go back to resupply, you know, obviously you, you'd have, you know, they, they would, they would take advantage of that for sure. You went back in again after being told again, not to, <laughs> um, which was a useless order at that point and prior. And, uh, and as I understand it, th- this was the time, the third time in that, that you found the, the Marines, your fellow Marines. Well, I, I went in. And so I think on my third time, I went in and I had, had, had jumped in a truck with 
So basically at this point, you know, air was overhead. And what they would do is, is they would fly and they would say spot, right? And so like wherever the helicopter was at that point, I knew that below them was a body. And so it was kind of like our communication to show, like for them to be able to show where, because the terrain was just, the terraces were, I mean, you know, the terrain was, was, was hard to see. And um, so they would say spot. And then what I would do is I would, I would run over to wherever that was and I'd grab a body and I'd bring them back. Right. And, um, you know, cause at this point, what had happened was a lot of these Afghan soldiers, they were just pretending to be dead, you know, and the only way they would show you they're alive is they'd like move their foot because they couldn't move fast enough. They were getting shot at. And so like the best bet for them was to pretend like they were dead until somebody could help them. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I went in and, and, and so they, called spot over on this, this, the Northern side of the Valley. And it was pretty far off and you couldn't get a Humvee over there. So we jumped into a Ford Ranger. We went over and, uh, I got out and the driver stayed in. And as I, I ran around the side of this, like this terrace and the terrace was kind of curved, you know what I mean? Like it's easy to see all the way to the end of a straight wall, right? It's always easy to, to, to find the end of a straight wall, but you know, a curved one, you, you can only see so far. And so as I come around, I, I run up on one of my, literally one of my best friends, uh, Dot Ali. And Dot Ali was so close to me, uh, just such an incredible Afghan, taught me a, a lot. And uh, as I bend over to pick him up, he'd been shot. As I bend over to pick him up, he, uh, I mean, rigor mortis had already set in. So he'd been, he got killed early on. Mm-hmm. And as I bend over to pick him up, I'm kind of like on my knee, right? I'm up against the terrace and like, I'm on my, my right knee and my left knees up my, my weapon. Like, you know, when you sit down like that, you don't want to put the barrel in the, in the ground. So, you, you know, you got to protect the barrel. And so it was sitting facing up. And so as I, I'm reaching down, trying to get him arranged, I'm getting shot at. So I'm trying to stay low. And I just feel this, like, I don't know if you've ever been hit so hard in the head to where you see these like stars, like white stars. But I got hit in the back of the head and uh, I, I just, I thought I, I didn't know, I didn't, honestly, I didn't know what happened. And as I turn around, there's this guy standing over me with an AK-47 and he's like pointing at me to go with him. And I just remember thinking to myself, uh, well, first off, I was mad that I messed up. And then second off, I just, all I could think about was I, I didn't want my family to see this on TV. Like this never goes anywhere good. You know what I mean? Like, like, and I just, I just like, you're going to kill me. Like, that's all I could think about was like, just kill me, just kill me. And, uh, when I turned, my finger was sitting right on the trigger. And so I had what's called a 203 grenade launcher on the bottom of my M4. Uh, and it's basically, it's a 40 millimeter grenade. When it goes off, it, it takes uh, 28 meters, I think, or 32 meters, whatever, but a certain amount of turns and it, and then it explodes. It's literally like a grenade. It, it, it's, you know, it kills everything within a five meter radius. So when I turned, I, I, I just, I felt my finger on the trigger and I couldn't remember if, if it was even loaded. Like, honestly, I didn't know if it was loaded. I didn't know if it was, I didn't know. I didn't know if it was going to go click and then he's going to shoot me or what. And so I squeezed the trigger on it and it hits him in the chest. And he falls over and I, 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 I don't remember like why I didn't 
or if I did, or I, I don't remember anything about like how I got from there to, I go back to Dada Lee and I'm grabbing him and I'm trying to pick him up. And it's like this fight. And he's like, we're rolling on the ground. He's choked. He's like, he's trying to grab my eyes and, and I can't get my gun. And, and it's like, he, he, he's got my, he's literally got, got his arm around me in a chokehold and I'm trying to get out of it. And I'm just like, I'm just so exhausted. And I remember like my vision just starting to like that, just like, I'm, I'm going to pass out. Like I'm going to pass out. I don't know if it was because of obviously him choking me. I don't know if it was obviously, you know, my muscles just fatigued or me freaking out. And I remember getting to this point to where like, you know, like I'm holding on obviously around my neck. And I just remember him like loosening up and, and who knows why he loosened up his grip. Like maybe he lost enough blood. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And so like, I remember getting over on top of him and I just start fighting him. Right. Like I'm fighting him and like I'm hitting him and I'm trying to grab whatever I can. And, and I get on top of him and he's on his back. And um, I remember getting on top of him and finally like holding his like face down with my, my forearm and I reach up and I finally, I grab a rock. And all I do is I just start bashing this guy in the face. And uh, I don't know, it was like three or four hits. And I just remember this look in his face. And, and, and he just like had this look that he knew he was going to die. And I truly believe that when people die, like they know they're going to die. I truly, I truly believe that there's this look at, at the point that they know they're gone. They're, they're, they're going to have it. I, I see it when I'm, you know, as a firefighter, I, I've seen it in war. I've seen it with enemy and I've seen it with, with friendlies. And he had that look and, and obviously I don't think I thought about it at that moment, but I think about it all the time. Cause he's literally the only face that I still see. And I, I just realized I, I didn't hate that guy. Like, I don't even know him. Uh, he had a family that, that would miss him. I had a family that would miss me. Uh, there was only one way out of it. Like either he was going to die or I was going to die. He believed he didn't believe he was wrong. He believed in his cause as much as I did. And it was just kind of crazy, like th this point that how we got there was just because we were born in two different places. And uh, it's at that moment that I realized that that I wasn't fighting off of hate. I was fighting off of because I loved my country. I loved my my people. It was this wasn't being done out of hate. It was being done out of because I loved and believed in what I my life and in our country and, and and obviously my teammates and so I killed this guy and it was like at that point my life changed forever I took Lee and put him back in the truck and we 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 left and then we got in the, the other Humvee and then we you know we located the bodies just a little bit after this and went and grabbed them it sounds absolutely primal it sounds like I mean talk about fight or flight like you were on instinct at that point to save your life. I mean, there was, when I hear you talk about it, I, maybe I'm wrong. I feel like there's a tinge of regret. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't regret. Um, no, I, I, I don't regret killing him. I, I just regret that it had to, had to come to that. Mm. Um, I did. I mean, I don't regret killing anybody. Um, I, there was no other ask options. Of you. Uh, you did, you did what was asked for you did your duty. Yeah. I just, I think it just sucks that like, that it had to come to that. Did it? 
I mean, that's the question. Did it have to come to that? You know what I mean? Uh, that's the part that sucks, right? No, nobody wins, right? It, 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 no, nobody wins. Uh, not, what, what was accomplished, right? Like, I, I understand. I understand that, that, that we get someone evil off, off the planet. That, yeah, 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 we did. did. Did we change anything, though? You know, and that's the, that's the hard part of it is, is did it have to come to that? I, I mean, for you, you're the man in the position to ask that question. You're allowed to ask that question. We're all allowed, but it's more, more meaningful coming from you. And I would just say, though, to the extent I'm allowed to opine on it from my anchor chair, the answer is 100 percent. Yes, it did. It did matter. I I don't know that it was worth the blood and treasure, but it definitely did matter just because we left with our tail between our legs. Thanks to the decision of our current commander in chief didn't erase what you guys did for us over there. I mean, you kept the homeland safe for 20 years that that happened. You know, we did not face another massive terrorist attack here because you guys were doing things like that over there. And that. That can't be taken away. No, I, I, and I, and I guess like my, my, my factor to it is this, is it's not, you know, you, you could argue all day whether we should have been there or whether we shouldn't, right? Like that, that is a, that's a, that's a, look, I think that if the Taliban thought that we were going to occupy them for 20 years, they would have handed us Osama bin Laden on, on September 12th. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but the fact is, is that we could have done and left that country better. Like yeah. the people that we had there, the troops that we had there, the capabilities that the United States of America has, there's no doubt in my mind that we could have truly made a difference and we could have truly left an everlasting mark and gave them some type of hope of democracy, not necessarily what we have, but something that's more fitting to what the majority of them want, not what America wants for them, but what they want for themselves. And the mass people, uh, that live there, they want good. They, they they want good. They want they don't want this killing and this evilness. Like they, they they don't like. I don't I don't care what what anybody says. And I just think that we could have done a better job, and we could have done a, a, a more of a a a a, a better job and, and left them in a better position of hope. If if we had kept the politics out of it, we'd have let these these men and women who are just incredible people who were willing to go do the nation's bidding, if we'd have let them do their job and, and let them let them have, you know, instead of this being a, a, all about politics, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And there's zero question. We did not leave well. We did not leave those who we were partnering with well at all. And the news reflects that daily. I mean, for what it's worth on the politics front, Joe Biden's approval numbers have never recovered. They fell thanks to that debacle and they've never recovered. And do, so I do think Democrat or Republican here in this country, it was held against him. The, the country knew it was wrong and it wasn't all on him. I mean, I know you're talking not just about the, the withdrawal, but years beforehand and how Afghanistan was handled. Um, let me let me pause that. And we'll come back to it because I, I want to get to the last phase of this battle. Um, you go back in again. again. So I guess now we're on time number four. What happened that time? And so that was the time. So time number four is the time that we went in and, and uh, they located the bodies. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget. They said, well, and they just said they, they found four or they see four bodies. Like that was how they were saying, like two bodies, whatever. And so they said five bodies in this trench. And I asked them to drop a uh, smoke grenade. 
and I took off sprinting and I ran and, and jumped off this terrace and, and landed in the ditch. And I landed on top of uh, Gunnar Sergeant Johnson. And then I went a little bit to the left and there was Doc Layton with all of his med gear out on top of um, Lieutenant Johnson. And then a little bit further was Gunny Kinnefick and uh, they'd all been killed. And so it was just like every, everything in me was gone at that moment. I, uh, I remember reaching down and, and uh, picking I think I picked up Gunny, Gunny Johnson first and Gunny was the biggest one and I picked him up, threw him over my shoulders and I, I started to carry him out and I just slipped and I fell. Like it was like every bit of energy I had left, I fell flat on my face and I got back up and, and, uh, the, uh, Afghan soldiers, I see them there, they're right there and they're going to, to grab the guys. And, and I was kind of upset. I, I, I kind of got mad at them and I said, Hey, don't, don't touch my guys. I said, I'll, I'll take him home. And uh, Fazel came up to me and he said, no, he said, uh, and I, I did, I, I started crying. Like I literally, like when I fell with Gunny Johnson, like I literally started crying. And mm -hmm. uh, I'll never forget Fazel came up to me. He said, don't, don't cry. You can't show this weakness. And uh, I was like, you're right. And, uh, and he said, the Afghans want to help you get your guys out because they just watched you help get their guys out. And uh, it was such a, a kind of, for me, it was like a monumental moment in my life of, you know, it's not us against them. It's just, it's, it's good against bad. And, you know, they helped me carry them out. We, we put them in the, the backs of these trucks. And I'll never forget, I, I jumped in the back of this, this, this Afghan Humvee. It was like a high back. I had uh, Gunny Kinnefick and Lieutenant Johnson in my truck and I, we left the team and we were just heading back to base and it was on the way out all these afghans the villagers were standing at the mouth of the valley just laughing at me like just pointing and laughing and uh you know we went on back and, and got on base and yeah that was that was kind of the end of the day i know in the book you mentioned at that moment you're thinking what am i going to do to them you know, maybe I'll do something to them. And was it Faisal yeah. or somebody in the truck said, no. It's not worth it. So it's not worth it. I, I did. I did. I, 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 uh, I did. I did. I, uh, yeah. But it, it just. Who could blame you? you know, no, no one would blame you for feeling that. that's what separates us from them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But the feeling is completely human. And I mean, you know, it's Dakota, when I hear the story, I feel like you kept your promise, you know, you, you were on the road, you did meet them, not in the way any of you intended, but you lived up to your word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still the biggest failure in my life. Uh, the biggest failure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, you don't get to change. You, you don't get to change. Um, just because it doesn't feel good doesn't mean you don't you don't get to you don't get to change it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's just it's just the facts of it. You know, like I my, my teammates are dead, and I'm I'm not. It's like I told. It's like I told them when they called me to give me the award. Uh, when they said you're a hero, and I said, well, why don't you call my why don't you call my teammates and let them know how much of a hero I am? 
you know, that, that th this is the reality of it. And, and, you know, like, I don't say it to feel sorry for myself because I don't feel sorry for myself. You know, look, th this is, uh, you know, I, I, I failed. It's the biggest failure of my life, but, but it's also what, what has, what is, has driven me to, to, you know, to, to push myself to, to different limits and to still continue. But I don't understand to, that. To I don't understand this. How is it your failure? How is it yours? Well, I, I, I left that morning to go in there and, and, and get them out alive. And, uh, you know, life, life's pretty simple. You either get them out alive or you die trying. And if you didn't die trying, well, you didn't try hard enough. And no, that doesn't make sense. That's, I, that's not true. Well, well I mean, it's not true. It, it, you, yeah. you're, you're, your promise would be no more kept if you had died in the effort, right? I mean, you just, there just would have been more bloodshed, more lives lost. Yeah, but, but, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I hear you. Like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying that it's supposed to, it's supposed to make sense, but. I know, and I know but, I'm not going to convince you. I just, but at the end I of the know day, my right? audience doesn't want that remark to go on unchallenged yeah. because we're, we're all on your side and not a single person listening to this thinks that you failed in any way. Well, I mean, at the end of the day though, I went in there to get them out alive. And I truly believe in my heart that on that first trip that I went in, that I might've been 50 yards from them. I truly believe that they were alive. And, uh, after I was hit, like, and the gun went down, I turned around, right? And, uh, and I, you know, I just, I, I, I think that I took that into my, I don't know. I just don't think that I had the right to do that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, extraordinary. we all live, we all have to live with our decisions, you know, and that's, that's just part of it. And again, I don't, I don't like, I don't want people to, I hate, I hate when I see people comment on this and they're like, oh, well, you know, he's just struggling. No, no, I'm not, I'm not struggling, but I'm also not going to change the narrative to feel good. Right. Like so many people try to do through life. I, I use this as an example to go around and teach people, right. Like, you know, me serving or, or, or this is why you train, or this is why, you know, you, 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 this is why you, you don't, you don't go into things casually or, you know what I mean? Like I, I use this as good and, and it is my fuel. It's my fuel to go around and tell the stories. It's my fuel to, to remind people that, Hey, look like, you know, um, that, that, that life's hard. Recession and inflation are here. Gas, housing, and everyday goods are up, way up. And you want to be ready for any situation. So what would you do if there's no food on the shelf? Arc Heirloom Seeds are here to help. Did you know 99% of seeds sold today can't reproduce? With Heirloom Seeds, you only have to plant once. Then you can grow year after year, giving you and your family stability and security because things are getting crazy out there. Our all-in-one seed kit provides everything you need to grow your own food. This premium seed kit has over 65 varieties, 50,000 seeds in stores for 15 years. You'll also get our exclusive seed guide to make growing a no-brainer. Arc Seed Kits is a family-owned and operated business and the most trusted name in the nation for over 15 years. Our mandate is to get heirloom seeds into every home in America. Go to arcseedkits.com today and get free shipping by entering promo code podcast. That's ARKseedkits.com, promo code podcast. Get your seeds, get prepared, get growing. Arcseedkits.com. I wonder if you can see that 
you know, that the same thing that makes you blame yourself for this is the thing that saved the lives of 13 Americans and 23 Afghans that day. Like the thing that makes you see everything as a matter of your personal responsibility is the thing that won you the Medal of Honor. And it's your your burden and your blessing to bear. Yeah, it was always the hardest part of getting the medal, right? Like, um, you know, I, I, it was it was just such an oxymoron of I, I, I went against orders. Hmm. Uh, I lost my entire teammates. Like I lost the guys I cared about. Uh, and now I'm awarded from, for it. And, you know, I always and for a long time, I don't I don't necessarily look at it like this anymore. But, you know, first off, I don't wear the medal. Uh, I don't, if, if it's not in my daughter's backpack or, or her, I gave it to my daughter, you know, she enjoys it way more than I ever have. And, um, I just, you know, I always felt like it was like a punishment to me. This was part of the punishment for, uh, for the failure. Wow. I mean, even under your totally ungenerous interpretation of what happened that day, ungenerous to yourself, there would be failures and there would be enormous successes. I mean, do you, do you allow yourself the, the feeling of, I don't know if it's triumph or gratitude that you were, you, you helped save the lives of so many others, dozens of others. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I honestly, until you just said, I I mean, I, I don't really know that I ever thought about it. You know, I don't know that I don't know that I, I don't know that I think about it. Right. Like I, I just think about, you know, I just think about the, the moments that, that changed my life. And, and, you know, I, I'll say this, you know, the, the man that I am today, like I, I, you know, that, that, that guy, you know, that I came into contact with in there, you know, I feel like he, he gave me the heart that I have, right. He, he, he gave me the empathy that I have. He gave me the understanding. Like if I can find a way to connect with that man, mm-hmm. There's no way, there's no reason we can't find a way to connect here. You know, there's no, uh, you know, choosing to, to, to hate people and choosing to choosing hate over love is something that, that I know it sounds, it sounds so weird, but like choosing hate over love is, is, is truly a harder choice. It's like trying to frown over smile, right? It's, 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 there's, there's more reasons to care about people and to have empathy towards people. And we can all, we are all more alike than then we are different. Hmm. What a perspective. And from such a moment, as you described it with that, with that Afghan man, you mentioned this led to the end of your career as a Marine, though, though one is never a former Marine, right? You're never a former Marine, but, um, can you explain why? Because things that this, the stress and the trauma of what happened that day stayed with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was in a bad spot. I mean, look, I, I, I'll say this. I was, I was struggling, uh, struggle for a long time. Uh, you know, just a lot of factors, right. I don't obviously like war's war, right. Like I signed up to do that. I mean, I, listen, this, this is what I get. I signed up for it. Um, I knew what I was getting into. It's like a, you know, it's like a football player getting mad at getting hit. Right. Um, but, but what I didn't sign up for is the incompetency and in leadership, the lack of accountability. Yeah. I didn't sign up for, um, you know, I didn't sign up for that. And that was the part where I was so mad 
that, 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 that I probably struggle with more than anything. I don't blame you. You, and, and we'll, I want to talk about that, but you, as I understand it, you were sent back home because you were starting to behave in reckless ways. You were carrying this, this you're carrying this with you and acting in ways that, that made clear you were, I don't know if I want to say you had a death wish, but you were taking unnecessary risks to yourself. Yeah. So you got sent back home and you went into uh, a treatment program, right? For, for PTSD. And yeah. you're very open in your book about the fact that, I mean, this is amazing. Two weeks before the president of the United States called you and told you that you were being awarded the Medal of Honor, you attempted to take your own life. Yeah, it was it was a little bit before that, but yeah, I yeah I did. I mean, it was it, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I just looked around at what I was doing to people. You know, and 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 like the, I just looked around at like the, the worry I put on my dad. Um, I just felt like a burden and, you know, like I never wanted to be a burden on anybody. Like I never, I still don't. I mean, I, I never, if I'm not, if I'm not an asset or I'm not a value or I'm not contributing in some way, like I don't want to be part of it. And, uh, I, I felt like where I was at in life at that point that, that, you know, that I just couldn't get my stuff together and, and, and I just, I, I should fix it. Right. And can you uh, describe it, Dakota? Like what, what was it? What, what was going through your head? What was the pain? What, what was it that made you feel like a burden? Just like, you know, I, I just like, I, I was evil, you know, like I just like the fear I could see in people's eyes, you know, with me, like I was a monster. It's just like drinking and just, you know, you know, the thing is, is, is and people don't talk about this much, you know, you don't fight evil with nice people. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you don't, you don't fight rough and ragged, you know, rough and rugged people with, with, you know, with, with, with nice people. Like you either got to get on their level, you either got to get on their level or, or, or you're going to get killed. You know, it's like, it's just, it's kind of like animals. And, um, and I came back and just, I don't know, I couldn't turn it off and I was hurting and, and, uh, I didn't know what to do with it. I mean, I, you know, I was 21 years old and, uh, and I, yeah, I just, I just didn't know what to do with it. And so just turning to alcohol, which is never, which is ne alcohol has never been known for helping anything. Right. And, uh, and, you know, because that was part of the culture. That's how we dealt with everything in the Marine Corps before. Right. So it's it just, it's continued on the, the behaviors that I knew and I got out and, and yeah, I just, I just, I don't know. Like I, I just seen, there was a couple of friends that I had and I just, I think it was that night that I just seen like the fear in their eyes. And, uh, and I just, I remember driving home and I pulled off this highway at my buddy's shop because I knew, you know, I didn't want anybody worried about me. Right. So I, I pulled in and I knew that he would be in cause he comes into work every morning. And I just, yeah, I mean, I was, I was going to do it right there. So that way that when he came in, he would, you know, he'd find me and then nobody had to, at least nobody had to worry about me, you know? In a small miracle, you tried to use a firearm and learned yeah. after pulling the trigger, it was unloaded. Yeah, and I had shot that gun that day. 
like I had shot it that day and uh, like, I don't know that I, I don't have too many guns that are unloaded. And so like I, that gun was, yeah, I, I stuck it to my head and I squeezed the trigger and it just like, it went click and there was no round in it. And I don't know if, you know, I, I feel like I know who did it. I, I don't, I don't, I don't truly know though. Like I, obviously in my heart, I, I, I feel like I know, but, but I, you know, I, yeah, I mean, again, you think someone there, took the bullets out, someone who cared about you? Yeah, I, I think somebody probably seen how I was that night and they, you know, they they took took the bullets out. And so I remember thinking to myself after it went click, I remember thinking to myself, I made a deal with myself that that day. And I said, if you're going to keep living life this way, then put bullets in it and get it over with. Like, just do it, you know? Uh, don't ruin everybody else's life uh, over yourself. Mm. And, but if you don't do it and you put the vehicle in drive, you're not going to look back. And that's, you know, that here I am. That was the before and after moment. And you never found out, you, you, no one ever said to you, I took the bullets out. Like you don't, you don't know. Mm -mm. Um, I didn't, honestly, I didn't tell like, I literally did not mention that to anyone. The first person I ever told that to was Bing West when he wrote my book. And I just, cause I felt, I felt so obligated to tell that piece because in these books that, that we came back and wrote, we, you know, we, it looks like people are larger than life. And, you know, what wasn't talked about early on was, was that we all struggled, you know, it wasn't the demons. And I felt like I couldn't talk about, you know, the battle and tell the war story without telling the cost. Right. Well, too often we we skip right past that in an attempt to honor our soldiers, you know, our Marines. It it feels like, well, why would we want to go to that place? That's the dark place of the story. But I think all of it is to your credit. I mean, all of it's to your credit to reach out to your you know, fellow service members and say, I went through this. It's real. There's no shame in it. It's there's no shame. It's actually, I don't know, for lack of a better word, normal to have immense trauma and stress after something like that. And it makes me not to therapize you, Dakota, but it makes me want to stop on, you know, they don't send nice men to war. You know, there, I was evil. Like you, you have to make room for the, for the very real alternative, right? This is cognitive behavioral therapy. Like the, yeah. the elephant body is saying you're evil, you're evil. But the man riding on top of the elephant is and can manage those emotions and say to himself, no, okay, the alternate narrative is I can behave in ways that might resemble evil if they weren't done for good reasons. You know, if I weren't sent here on a contract basis by my government to defend my country, um, I can behave in ways that might look awful to somebody who didn't understand the context of it, but it doesn't make me an evil man. You know, like Osama bin Laden, evil, right? But Dakota Meyer, no. Yeah, no, I, and, and, I, and I'm with you, right? Like, like, I have the capability of being evil, right? I have the capability of being a monster. Um, and I've experienced that and had to, had to do that at levels that a lot of people won't have to. Right. And I, I pray that they don't ever have to. Um, but I know I've, I've seen it, you know, it's, it's like, it's almost like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's almost like, uh, 
you know, you know, like in an argument, like, you know, like the, the first time you get in an argument with somebody and, and you're like, oh, shut up. And they're like, whoa, somebody told me to shut up. Right. And then it just escalates. And right. The further you get in that, like whether it goes to throwing punches or whatever, that's your new that's the new bar standard. Right. Um, you know, I, I got to experience that, you know, for better or worse. Right. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm not evil. Like I, I'm I'm a, I'm a good person. Uh, I am are. on the side of good. Uh, but I think that like the hard part is, is going over there and, and having to live with these evil creatures and right. Like I, I'm, I'm saying we're, there is a lot of difference for us, right? Like when people talk about, well, how's, how's America any different than, than, you know, than Russia, than what Russia's doing. Well, like, like, first off, let's sit down. And we can have a conversation about this. Let's talk about our troops. Let's talk about how we handle ourselves over there. Right. I understand that there's a fine line in any situation between murder and self-defense, right? Or, or, or whatever it is. And, and literally it's intent. It's what your intentions were. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is an aspect that, that yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm not evil. Like I, I'm, I'm a good person. But like at that point in time, at 21 years old, after, after being consumed in this and doing this over and over and over and over again, and, and literally like, you know, it, it's, you, you start to question you know, you start like you have to figure out a way to control that. And it, sure. I don't think that any 21 year old, uh, most 21 year olds can't even control, uh, you know, their 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 lunch account in, in college, much less uh, the the emotional levels of, of this aspect. Right? Oh, my God. I mean, we have people right now complaining that they're deeply depressed and having suicidal ideations, allegedly over mean tweets. I mean, it's yeah. like what you went through is the ultimate in trauma. I mean, it really is. And it doesn't make it different just because you're a Marine. And honestly, one of the reasons why it's important for you to tell your story, uh, you know, warts and all, is because we are, for lack of a better term, a little trigger happy in the United States, or at least we have been for the past 20 years. And as we debate, you know, just how provocative should we be toward Russia in this conflict with Ukraine and how, you know, we had Joe Biden basically saying we will go in against China if they try to take Taiwan. Is that like maybe Maybe we could dial back the rhetoric and be a little bit more thoughtful and cautious before we just threaten American troops are coming or to send our American troops in because you are the perfect example of how special these guys are and how we need to we need to be really, really careful and thoughtful before we risk the lives of men and women like you. Yeah, we yeah, we, we yeah, we do. We do. And 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 uh yeah, and, and and not not just because like risking you know our lives, but but the the, the spill factor on this is astronomical. Yeah. You know the spill factor of guess what like th- there's going to be people who have no people from from other countries that that have that you know they they didn't do the politics they they didn't you know they're not they're not the ones making these decisions to go to war either right and so. Yeah. You know, it's a factor, the humanization, you know, we've got to stop taking the humanization factor out of all this. Right. And, 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 and yeah, look, there's, I'm telling you, there's nobody who'd be more willing to go do the nation's bidding on behalf of democracy more than me. And, and, and guess what? Like, look, we, as much as we want to talk about the generation, the country's weak or whatever, I'll tell you this, we still have an all volunteer military. You know what I mean? We still have men and women who believe in this country and these ideas uh, in, in a time right now where it's not it's not necessarily a, a cool thing. 
but who are still signing up and willing to raise their right hand to go fight on behalf of this country, no matter what the politics are, no matter what what the the, the news wave is, there there's still men and women who are doing it, right? And we have to be, we have to hold those with value. We have to really put some time and effort in to thinking about where are we sending them and what are the repercussions of this? And is it worth it? At, at what cost? At what cost are we going to do this? You know, I think that's what they, they somebody should have to show before we start sending this in. At what cost? At what cost are we going to defend, uh, you know, are we going to defend Taiwan? At what cost are we going to help out Ukraine, right? At what cost, right? And as long as, as long as they'll put out at what cost and what our objective is, I think that's got to be identified, but there's been no accountability. Like, what, what was our obje- objective in Iraq? What was our objective in Afghanistan, right? It just kept getting changed. The ball kept getting moved, and then we're there forever. And then troops just, you know, guys just keep getting killed. And it's like, tell us what we're doing. Tell us what we're going after, right? Like, what, yeah. what is it? Like, like, identify the objectives. Okay, once we do this, we're leaving, and that's it, right? And and that that's what it's got to come down to. And we've got to be able to lay out and say the cost and let people know that. So let's flash forward a bit and we'll, and we'll we'll conclude with sort of the the most recent chapter because you get you get the call from President Obama. You're not in a great place emotionally. Love the story. We talked about this last time you were on with Rob O'Neill about how you told him you were too busy, you couldn't chat. <laughs> the President of the United States is calling your you're like, it's not a good time, sir. I actually work for a living. So can you just explain that? What happened there? Yeah, I was busy. You know, like I was pouring concrete. I was tying steel and pouring concrete. I was actually working for my cousin and you know, the, they, they called the headquarters Marine Corps called me and, and said, they're, yeah, they're going to do, they need to, they, well, first off, they call me, I don't know why. And they just tell me they need to send somebody out to talk to me. Hmm. And I was nervous, right? Like I, yeah. why would headquarters Marine Corps be contacting me after <laughs> I'm out? Yeah. Sounds ominous. Uh, yeah. It was, I thought I was in trouble. Right. I thought like, I, I, I thought, I thought I was in trouble. Yeah. You disobeyed a bunch of orders, you know, it's like, who knows what this is going to be about. Yeah, I thought I was in trouble. And uh, they, so they fly a guy out and I meet him and he, and he tells me, he goes, hey, look, you're going to be receiving the Medal of Honor. And I go, man, you got the wrong guy. And uh, he said, no, no, you're, you're going to be receiving it. It's uh, actually, I guess it was the day that it was going from the Secretary of Defense over to the White House. And his last signature was, was President Obama. And President Obama is obviously going to do the recommendation of 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 whoever it was at the time and so i i just told him i'm not going to accept it i said you know why don't you all just mail it to me Uh and he said no and we kind of we kind of went back and forth the guy's name was colonel Otto rutt just a really 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 incredible human being but it turned out to be a close friend and i said "I, i i don't want to just tell him i'm not coming and so long story short, we go back and forth and, and I agree. I agree that I'll accept it as long as they have a ceremony at each one of my teammates' grave sites at the same time. Mm. And uh, the, uh, the Patriot Guard riders did that for me. And so long story. So then they, they tell you, they're like, hey, you know, the, the president's going to call you. They called me on a Friday. said, hey, the president's going to call you on, uh, on Monday at 1140. Uh, we need you to be on a landline an hour prior. Um, if, you know, and I was like, I can't do that. I gotta, I gotta, I've got to work. <laughs> like, what do, what do you mean? I said, look, I, I, I got a cell phone. I'm like, he can call me before work. And they're like, no, it's too early. 
And I said, well, you can call me after work. You know, I get home about seven and they're like, no, it's too late. I said, well, then, then he can just call me on my cell phone. I, I'll take my lunch break, you know, at 1140. And that way I can talk to him on lunch. I get 30 minutes. And so they <laughs> finally so arranged funny. it to where he could call it. And so I'm sitting at this gas station in Indiana. I was, we were pouring this slab for this school and we're sitting up there and I'm just eating these gas station, uh, this gas station food. <laughs> and we're sitting at the table and 1150 rolls around, nothing. 12 o'clock, nothing. And I'm like, well, I'm going back to work. So I start to go back to work and my phone rings nice. and it's one of his aides or something. And she goes, I'm, I'm just so sorry that he's late. And I go, well, I got to go back to work. You know, I'll try to answer the phone if I can, but you know, I've, I've got to work for a living. You all don't pay my bills. And, um, she's like, okay. And so a long story short, I get ready. I'm getting ready to get on a machine and my phone rings and it's unknown. And I I usually don't answer those calls, but I figured that today would be the day if I should. (laughs) And it comes up and and he goes, uh, Dakota. And I go, yes. He goes, this is Barack Obama. And I go, Hey, what's going on, sir? You know? And then he told me I'd be getting the, getting the medal of honor. Wow. I would be remiss if I didn't play some of that moment because I know you were going through a lot, but for the rest of us, it was quite something to watch that happen. I remember, I remember being on the air watching it, just stunned and so moved by your story. Here is a bit of the president of the United States, Barack Obama, presenting Dakota Meyer with the Medal of Honor. Watch. It's been said that where there is a brave man in the thickest of the fight, there is the post of honor. Today, we pay tribute to an American who placed himself in the thick of the fight. Again, and again, and again. I would point out something else. Of all the Medal of Honor recipients in recent decades, uh, Dakota is also one of the youngest. He's 23 years old, and he performed the extraordinary actions for which he is being recognized today when he was just 21 years old. Despite all this, uh, I have to say, Dakota is one of the most down-to-earth guys that you will ever meet. And because of your humble example, our kids, especially back in Columbia, Kentucky, and in small towns all across America, they'll know that no matter who you are or where you come from, you can do great things as a citizen and as a member of the American family. You certainly can. Second youngest recipient ever, third living recipient of the Afghanistan-Iraq wars, first living U.S. Marine to be given the honor in 38 years uh, and at just 22 years old for actions taken at 21, at age 21. Again, 13 American lives saved, 23 Afghan lives saved um, before he's barely able to even have a drink. I mean, it's really extraordinary. Um, You went on to marry Bristol Palin, uh, Sarah Palin's daughter, and who you met, I understand, giving a speech with Sarah Palin. And there was Bristol, and the two of you had two daughters and ended in divorce. And uh, I understand you and she are in a decent place right now, according to what I read. Yeah. That was another thing for which you entirely blamed yourself, according to what I what I read. But you're in a good yeah. place now. Yeah. Yeah, it's all good. You know, I got I got two beautiful daughters, and, and you know, that's, that's what matters. Like, my, my girls are my world. And which daughter gets to carry the Medal of Honor in her backpack? <laughs> so, uh, so Sailor, so Sailor, she she's my oldest. Um, you know, I, I gave it to her, and you know, she honestly, the funny part is, is she lost 
So like we went like a month, OMG. month, month and a half uh, without it. We couldn't find it, and <laughs> it showed back up in her backpack on the way home one day. I guess she left it at school or something. Oh, my God. I mean, on the bright side, if the teacher finds this, it's very clear who it belongs to. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know people. I I don't know if she let somebody borrow it or or what. But yeah, that's quite the show and tell. It's like the other kids are like, look at this cool car. I won at the arcade. She wears I mean, she wears it all the time. Like she wears it to like when we go eat at Chili's, she wears it every time. Walks in, like tells people she won it. (laughs) That must be kind of awkward for you. They want you to tell the story. What do you do then? Most people don't know what it is. You know what I mean? Like most people, 99.9% of Americans could, you know, wouldn't know what, what the Medal of Honor looked like. <laughs> so this is, reminds me of a little bit of Richard Dreyfus, who won the Academy Award uh, in the 1970s for Best Actor. And uh, he keeps it in his refrigerator. But he has a different MO because he figures at some point somebody's going to ask for a drink, you know, so he can send him over there. <laughs> it's just like oh, a conversation starter. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good idea. <laughs> so you can do some fun things with it if you want to, you know, keep keep wow. it rolling when your daughter gets older. And yeah. at, how has fatherhood changed you and your world perspective? Because I'm sure it has. Yeah. You know, like, so the 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 actual, the, the person, so her name's Katie Cobb. She was a psychologist. Uh, they, they embedded them at that, you know, at that time with this, uh, or when there was like an event like this. And so she she ultimately made the decision for me to come home and, and uh you know, for a long time, I was mad at her, you know, like I, uh, I, I was really mad at her. And, you know, after, after having Atlee and, and, you know, things kind of fatherhood kind of, kind of catching up to me and, you know, I just, I really appreciated her. And I called her, I called her probably nine years later, eight years later. And I just told her, I, I just told her like, thank you. You know, like I, I don't, I, I still don't agree with your decision. Uh, but I, I really do appreciate you sending me home and, and, you know, fatherhood has, fatherhood has um i mean you know you think you know a lot about life uh then 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 you become a parent and then you realize that you know you, you might be a black belt in life but you're just uh you know when you have kids you go back to being a white belt you know nothing and you know it, it's changed my whole perspective you know like having two daughters and and uh you know i need them more than they'll ever need me and just just being able to to do this you know i think I think the cool part about life is now is, you know, used to, I, I, I lived life because I had nothing to lose, you know, like I, I lived life. I'd go over and fight like that. I, I, you know, I do the things that I did because I had nothing to lose. And, and now I watch what I do because I got a lot to lose. I've got a lot to lose and, and, and my life is good. And, and uh, I, I wake up every day and I just, I'm just so fortunate that I get to do this again. Mm-hmm. And you, do you, are you feeling better, you know, mentally, emotionally? Have you continued with therapy? You seem, I mean, you seem like you're in a much better place. And I, obviously from our interview with Rob and your book, uh, and I know you're doing public speaking and leadership seminars and so on. In addition to working as a firefighter, you seem to me to be doing well and to, to, to feel well. But you tell me. Yeah, no, life's good. Like life is good. Like, I, I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I, I mean, I. I you know, I'm surrounded by great people. I get to wake up every day and I get to be part of this, you know, I, I get to do this. It's, it's, it's such an awesome, awesome life that we get to do. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. How'd I mean, you I, get like there? Said, how, how did you get from A to B on that score? You know, cause when, when last we left the, the story of, of your mental well being, you were not in a good place. So how did you 
get that guy who drove forward in the truck and said, no looking back to this guy? Well, you know, I, I had to stop. I had to stop blaming the world for my problems. You know, that was the first, that was the first step of, of fixing is I had to, I had to stop walking around feeling sorry for myself and expecting, expecting the world to feel sorry for me. Um, you know, everybody's gone through something. Look, the worst day of my life is no more significant than, than the worst day of your life to you. Uh, the fact is, is that, you know, we all have a choice with these things and, and there's plenty of things out there to help us. And, 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 but it's still at the end of the day, it comes down to your own choice. It comes down to, to, to you making the decision to, to find good. And there's plenty there, there's there for every bad thing you, you can say about this world or about your life or about anything else. There's 10 good things that you can choose to, to see too. And, and that, that's what it, that's what it comes down to is, is that aspect of it, of, of finding you look at whether, whether you want to find bad or you want to find good, you'll find it. And, um, you know, for me, it, 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 it took a, a lot of, a lot of hard times. It took a, you know, it, it took a lot of hard times and it took a lot of moments of, of, of just self-reflecting and having to face failure and, and then finally saying, hey, look, I'm going to change this, right? You know, you don't change anything when you're the victim. You don't fix anything. You have no control when you're the victim. And at the point that you stop being the victim, you find a way to, to, to change your, your perspective on, on, on you're not the victim. Uh, you're going to change up. You're going to change what you can to change the circumstances and, and, and things will change. And that, that's what, you know, I, I had to stop thinking that the world was going to change for me. And I started to have to, you know, change for the world. I, I'm going to take a risk here and say that Lieutenant Johnson, Sergeant Johnson, Sergeant Kennefick and Corsman Layton would never have wanted you to spend your life yeah. blaming yourself, feeling awful, calling yourself evil. They would have wanted you out there enjoying yourself, having love, having your your family until you can as they said see them on the flip side well that was it right i used to wear the bracelets on each each wrist right and uh of my teammates names and you know used to i mean i obviously still do like when i get to go pick my kids up uh you know we we were week on week off when i get to walk in that school and i get to see my kids after a week and they come running down that hallway and they come screaming dad you know that that you look forward to those moments, right? Like those are those are the moments that that melt your heart. And I'll never forget one day I I reached down to go grab um, Sailor, and when I did, like all the joy that I felt was instantly gone when my eye when I laid eyes on my the 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 memorial bracelet, mm. and uh, after that I threw them away. And I said, I'd never wear them again. And the one thing I know for certain is that there, you know, any amount of joy that I lose because of my teammates, there's no chance they would have wanted that. That's right. Uh, they, uh, you know, they, they, they died so that we could all do this, right? Like they died so that I could live the life that I can. They died so you can live the life that you can. And uh, they died so that we can all go out and, and live a life. And, and I just believe that any day that I don't make the most of the day and I don't enjoy it and I don't soak it up and I don't appreciate it, uh, I'm doing nothing but, but spitting on their sacrifices. You know, my obligation to them uh, is to go out and live a life that's worthy of their sacrifices. And, and that, that, that's, what, that's what I try to do. 
I know you had the opportunity to go visit Ground Zero and the site of the Twin Towers uh, with another Marine. And when you were there, somebody, an iron worker, I guess, handed you a silver marker and you had the chance to write on a girder. Yeah. Can you tell us what you wrote? Yeah, so this is kind of cool. Like right after the ceremony, uh, right after the Medal of Honor ceremony, I came to New York and, and I, uh, and, and so, you know, they were giving us a tour of the World Trade Center or the new World Trade Center. And, you know, they were still building it. And I looked over at this, one of the iron workers was a Marine. And I said, hey man, like, I, I want to go up to the top. And uh, he said, well, can you climb a ladder? And I was like, well, yeah, of course. And so we kind of bounced off from the tour and, and uh, climbed this ladder. And he, he climbed me all the way up to the top of this thing. Literally, I was standing on top of the floor that they were on. And, and it, was just, it was just steel going up, you know, as like there was nothing above me. And it was such a, a cool moment. And, uh, you know, I wrote, I wrote FTWGA uh, on, the, uh, on, on the, the iron. And it stood for those who gave all. And uh, a cool part to follow on to that story is, is uh, after it was completed, I came down and, and went up to the top and got out. And, you know, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the tower that's on top of it. It's like the, mm-hmm. the, the it's on, so it's on top of the world, the new world trade center. Mm-hmm. So I looked at the, is it was a, another guy who was there at that time. I, I don't, I don't think it was the same guy, but I asked him, I said, Hey, uh, I want to, where's the highest point on this, on this, that sign? And he said, well, we signed the, uh, the lightning rod on top. We signed it before they put it up there. Oh. And I said, well, I, uh, I want to go, I, I want to sign it. And he said, he handed me a vest, like one of their, their safety harnesses. And he said, well, the only way you can get there is if you climb that ladder and it's over 300 feet tall. Oh. And so I spent the next four hours uh, climbing the ladder all the way up. And so I climbed all did. the way to the top above those lights that flash. I climbed all the way up. I got, I got videos and, and pictures. And I, uh, I signed the lightning rod and I put all my teammates' names on the lightning rod. I wrote this quote on the, on the bottom of it. And I just said, you know, let this tower uh, represent, you know, what we are. And what we'll come back as, uh, you know, to any of our enemies that try to challenge us. Wow. What we are and what we'll come back as. And that's that's where your story is now, how you've come back after having given all. On behalf of a grateful nation, thank you for your service. Thank you for telling your story. And thank you for leading the life you have thus far. So many more great, great chapters to come. It's obvious. And we're lucky to have you. You're a national treasure. Please keep talking and please keep reaching out and please don't ever let yourself get too low without calling because we're all here for you. No, thank you all so much. I really appreciate you. Wow. What a guy. What a man. That story is so moving. It's like, it's hard to believe we go about our days and things like that happen and men like that are walking around and we don't think about them or it right? Like we, we worry about such minutia. We get ourselves worked up over such nonsense. And you've got real live men like Dakota Meyer there available to talk about his experiences and life lessons, and you haven't tapped into it. Uh, I'm so glad that he let us 
today. And I'm honored to be able to bring you a guy like that this Memorial Day weekend. I hope you think about him. I hope you think about those who did not survive the Battle of Ganjagal and and all of our lost service personnel in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and those that came before, those who died for our freedom, right? For our freedom. Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.